people know me as Adi, the distance runner, you know, the funny guy, just, you know, outgoing. And that's all good thing. But they don't know the reason I came to U.S. How, how do I end up here? It was my choice. They struggled up behind the getting here, you know, just at the end of the day. What your parents, your family, what they've been to to get here. And that's the difficult part of the book because that just brings back some memory, you know, just because of the civil war in Somalia. It's not like I one day woke up and say, hey, I'm going to go to America. You know, it wasn't that easy. It was just one day you woke up and you don't know what the future holds for you. You don't know what you, where you're going to get your next meal, what happened, you know, because it's a civil war. At the end of the day, I'm thankful for everything that I've been through and made me the person who I am today. But it wasn't the easiest though. What's up, everyone? That was Abdi Abdurrahman. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you're listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. One quick ask for you here at the top of the show. If you're enjoying the podcast, please give it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on. It only takes a minute, helps new listeners discover the show, and it really means a lot to me. All right, Abdi Abdurrahman. He's one of my favorite people in the sport, and I am super excited to share this episode with you. I first interviewed Abdi 15 years ago, which we talked about toward the end of this episode. The 44-year-old is a five-time Olympian, and he'll represent the United States in the marathon at this summer's games in Japan. Abdi also has a new book coming out soon. It's called Abdi's World, The Black Cactus on Life, Running, and Fun, and it's due out in July. In this conversation, we talked about making his fifth Olympic team and how he's feeling three months out from the Olympic marathon. He told me about growing up in Somalia, coming to the United States when he was seven years old, and how that experience shaped his perspective and outlook on life. We talked about his longevity in the sport, his relationship with running and what it means to him beyond just competition and his career, and why he's gone to Ethiopia to train in recent years. Abdi also discussed his upcoming book, giving back to his community and establishing a charitable foundation built around hope, and a lot more. This episode is brought to you by BOA. BOA partners with leading brands to make the best gear even better. Born from hours of testing and innovation, each BOA Fit System configuration features a micro-adjustable dial, super strong lightweight laces, and low friction guides, allowing you to perform at your peak with increased connectivity, precision, and control. In partnership with La Sportiva, BOA and their team of biomechanists worked to design a shoe that would improve running efficiency, reduce landing impact, and provide a secure fit on technical terrain. Enter the new La Sportiva Cyclone. Designed to go the distance, the BOA-powered upper provides dialed-in, locked-in, and connected fit for stability and confidence on the trail. Available in men's and women's sizes, every aspect of the shoe is engineered to deliver revolutionary fit and performance on the trail. And it was designed and tested in BOA's state-of-the-art performance fit lab to improve running efficiency and reduce landing impact. BOA is exclusively offering four Morning Shakeout listeners the opportunity to win a free pair of the Cyclone. To enter, head over to boafit.com slash Mario. That's B-O-A-F-I-T dot com slash Mario. All right, that's it for the intro and ads. Please enjoy my uninterrupted conversation with Abdi Abdurrahman. One of my favorite people in running, and you have been in the sport for a long time, Abdi Abdurrahman. It is an honor to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Mario. You know, you're the only five-time Olympian that I've ever had on the show. Not that there are a lot of five-time Olympians in general. Uh, you know, I just, I still don't believe, I should, I, I'm, I'm still kind of disappointed I should have been a six-time Olympian, so, you know, I'm still not that competitor, so just a five-time Olympian is good, but six will have been better. The only team you haven't made in recent memory was 2016, and 
I was going to ask this question later, but since we're here, let's just go right into it. What was that like for you when you didn't make an Olympic team on the track or in the marathon in 2016? How were you thinking about your career at that point? Did you think it was time to hang it up or were you just more motivated to try and make it in 2020? Well, you know, to be honest, if I if I say I wasn't disappointed or I wasn't thinking about retirement and things like that, you know, it just I would be lying, to be honest. It was a difficult, you know, not especially like uh, I trained for the 2016 Olympic trials mm-hmm. real hard. And I thought my chance was as good as anyone, to be honest. Uh, but but the main thing was just to get to the starting lineup. So I didn't make it to the starting lineup. Unfortunately, I got injured like two weeks out. Wasn't even was minor injury calf, so didn't run. But you know, and I thought about it. You know, sometimes you do soul search. You say, what are you doing? Like, you know, what do you want to do in life? And at the end of the day, and I love running. And and I knew, and I always say, I took one year out of time. Mm-hmm. That year, I didn't. I thought about what I want to. You know, instead, while I was thinking, and I was such in good shape, and I say, you know what? Let me just finish this year and see what the future holds. You know, I just, I, I said, okay, I ran some summer road races, did some 5K, 10K, did pretty well. And I ended up doing that year, like New York City Marathon. And after that, I got third New York City Marathon. I finished the podium, which a lot of people, they say, oh, was washed down here. Just, you know, wasn't that many good people. But at the end of the day, I don't care who was in there, who was, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't select the field. I showed up. I get to the top three and that just give me a motivation, just something that told me I still could do this, you know, and I took one year at a time. And the trials was just getting closer and closer, 2000, you know, 2020. And to be honest, like end of uh, 2000, like middle of 2018, 2019, that's what I believe I have my chance was as good as anybody. You know, I never thought, I never say everything was guaranteed, but I say if I, if mm-hmm. I put myself in a good situation where I can compete, anything can happen. And that's all you can do in running. Even though you had already made four Olympic teams to that point, were you hungrier for the fifth than you were for the four that preceded it? Oh, definitely. I was more hungry at that fifth Olympic trials than I was my first, my first one because I knew what making an Olympic team meant to an athlete, you know, just like that's the pinnacle of uh, every runners. You know, for me, to be honest, I made the first Olympic team was amazing. Second Olympic team was amazing. Third Olympic was amazing. Fourth Olympic team was amazing. But and missing this, missing the 2016 and coming back and finishing the New York City third, it just gave me that, like, you know what, I can do this and just, it just make me, and I, and I, and I never, I never said what's go, it's going to be my last, but I thought, you know what, hey, this is going to be your last. So you have to put all your eggs in a one basket. So whatever happens, happens. You know, just I did the most miles I never did. I did all the hills. You know, I just, I did everything that I could. And if I didn't make that team and I would have walked away that day, I would have been happy and, uh, as happy as I am even making the team because someone else would have been better than me that day. So that's just the way I look at it. That was one of my favorite races to watch. It was actually the last race that I was at was the 2020 trials in Atlanta, which I think is probably the case for a lot of people. And I remember just talking to people before the race and who you think's going to make team, who you think's going to make team like, ah, you know, you know, Galen Rupp will make the team. And I'm not saying I was the only one, but I was like, watch out for Abdi. And people are like, no, Abdi's old, man. He's like 40. He's like in his forties. Like he's not going to make team. I'm like the longer, Abdi is in that race, the better chance I give him of, of making the team. And then as the race played out, it's like, Abdi's still there. Abdi's still there. Abdi's still there. And I feel like there are a lot of people who've been watching the sport for a long time who might have felt the same way. And, you know, I'm just curious to get into your head a little bit during the race. The longer that it went on, did you just feel more and more confident? Or were you just very confident from the very beginning that you were fit and you could race with anybody that day? <clears throat> to be honest, like, uh, you know, the marathon is a marathon. It's a 26.2 miles. Anything can happen, you know. At the end of the mm-hmm. day, the main goals, the main goals is to get to the, from the finish, from starting line up to the finish, to the finish. For me, that's the way I look at it, to be honest. And and for me, coming into the trials, I was as confident as I, as you could be. 
I was not definitely I was not lacking in confidence coming in because I get I get that confidence of you know just for my training that you know just my preparation the people that I was running with what I have done the timber that I have done you know it's just in and also like you know the people that you training whenever like whenever they tell you something and they believe in you and they say hey you're capable of doing that you take that energy with you for me like I was in Ethiopia for the last almost two and a half three months yeah, I in Ethiopia I came back about like uh I came back like two weeks out from the trials and I didn't go home. I came straight to Flagstaff, you know, did some temple runs, you know, Lake Murray, which is like everybody that who trains in Flagstaff knows Lake Murray. I did some of the, my best temple runs and I've been running on that road for over I don't know, over twenty years, let's say. And that was one of my best temple runs, you know, just at the age of forty three years old and I say, Wow you're going to do something special. And I just, and I came and I remember my friend Mo Bashir Abdi, uh, the people that are training with me, they told me you're going to make the team because like what I was doing, my long run was uh, extremely high intensity, you know, just like was the best that I ever done. And, and I did that. It's not like something I never done because I have like, and I was reading the message board, what the people say, you know, when they when they do the picks, like they say, who's going to be, you know, like, and that's one thing I love about the sports, you know, just that every four years, a lot of trial comes and people make their own prediction. I was not even the conversation, most of the people, unless you knew me, who I am and what I'm capable of, most of other people, they say, oh, Abdi, he just coming for the trials. Maybe he will do the best he will get was one of the common ones. And this guy was generous to me. So he said, the best thing was that uh, I will get to top 10. And at the end of the day, those people, they are quick to forget about you. Even though I was, that year I have set the Masters American record in New York City to 11. And New York City is a hard course. And I didn't even have one of the, and the reason I was believing myself to, I didn't have the best race in New York City at that year, even though I ran to 11. I was disappointed because I thought I could have run better. So coming in, I was super confident. And even before they even when the gun went off, I don't know if you remember, you were there. I went to the front to just send a message, let mm -hmm. the people know that I was there and I'm here to stay. That's it. There's no, I'm not going to give anybody like a chance to be like, you know, three or four people who are favored to run away, stay in the back. Like, you know, marathon, if you, I say, you know what, I'm going to run my heart out. That's it. There's nothing. And thank God. Everything worked on, on my favorite. I love hills. I just love the course and things went my way. Did reading those previews and checking out what people were saying about you on the message board get you fired up before you took the start line? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yes, man. I definitely sometimes, and I like those people too. I say, Hey, you know what? Just <laughs> that's what makes this sports is great, man. It just, you need some kind of motivation at the end of your 24 marathon, 26 plus miles every day you put it 20 plus miles a day you get tired you need some kind of motivation something excites you Just otherwise you would be bored those people are like a part of my you know my cheating squad <laughs> they've kept you going for this long why not man it just even weldon johnson ever i don't remember he probably give up now because he used to tell me i was done before even like 2015 2000 14, he used to say, like, oh, I'm just done. It's okay. Just, but you know what? I'm still here going, so don't be surprised if you see me 2024. <laughs> <laughs> well, that answered one of, my, one of my later questions that I've had for you. Um, one of the things that has, has already come out in this conversation and that I've always admired about you is that you're, you're so confident. And I want to emphasize that word because I don't think you're cocky at all. Um, and any time that I've ever asked you about how are you going to do in a race, like there's no wallowing in your answer. You're always like, I'm going to make the team or I think I can win. Or I remember once you told me, um, it's not a question if I'm going to break the record, but by how much. And I wonder like, where does that confidence come from? Have you always had it? Uh, man, I think I always had it. Just, it's just something that I, I think I was born with it, you know, just at the end of the, just, I don't know. It just, I'm also like, as an athlete, you know what? I'm not the most talented guy. I'm not the fastest guy, but at least I have something going on for me. And at least I'm confident and I believe in myself. And 
you know, just at the end of the day for me, it doesn't matter who's in the race, what they have done, what they're capable of doing it. Just like, I'm here. I'm an athlete. We have a prize money. So it's a race. Let the best man win. You know what? I'm not going to throw the white flag or just give up before even the race starts. So if someone asks you a question or you just want to ask you how you're going to do, I say, hey, I'm here to win and I'm here to make the team. And that symbols is that. It's not like not disrespecting anybody, not offending anybody. We all, and I hope, and I wish every single athlete could answer the question like that because the reason they are there is to make the team. There's no other reason. If you didn't want to make the team and if you don't believe you wouldn't make the team, don't come to the starting lineup. Stay home. You can watch it or just be a spectator. That's just, that's just the way I think and that's how my mind works. What gives you confidence before you step to the start line? Is it just all the training that you put in? Is it the consistency through the years? I'd love to try and understand that a little bit more. I think like, all the training, all the things that I have done. You know, I've been in this sports for like a 20 plus years. I make my first Olympic team in 2000. Even though a lot of people don't know that I make the U.S. team in 1999, Seville, Spain, the 10,000 meter. So I just look back and I just look back who is the starting lineup. And I just say, what? you only been doing this five years or six years. There's no way. You can outrun me because I have all the experience. I have the hard work. I have the mileage in my belt. So what else could I ever want? We're having this conversation right now. It's late May. The Olympic marathon is a little less than three months away. How are you feeling right now? And what do these next few months look like for you? You know what? Uh, everything is going well so far. I'm in the right direction. I'm in the right place when it comes to training. You know what? I'm not... I'm not the fittest as I can be, but you know what? I'd rather be ready in August 8th, ready to run and fit and feeling good than be fit right now. So, you know, it's been, last year has been a difficult year for me just because I got injured, I got stress fracture, you know, I take a few months off from running. So, you know, just, which is good. And I look at it, all runners, we deal with injury that I look at is a sky it's a blessing from the sky because of sometimes you like when you when you accomplish something great, you get carried away. You get like carried away. You get like so excited. You say, "Oh man, I'm gonna do something special." This, this, and last year that was me. I worked so hard. You know, I got injured like um, I think middle of October. I didn't get back. I didn't start training until like uh, December, like you know, toward the end of December. And I think that's. And I look at it as like a sign of sign of your body need just to recover because you know because I've been past three years I've been putting a lot of mileage a lot of training so which is was blessing from the sky so I I rest for like a month or two and I start training now I'm in a I'm in the right place I'm training so well things are going well I have a group of uh, I'm training with Mo you know just it's great and I saw Galen yesterday in a and the track at the NAU track, we have a little conversation. So, you know, things are going well, you know, just it's fun. I'm going to be doing some running with him. So it's going to be great. Do you plan on staying in Flagstaff until you leave for the Olympics? Cause you alluded to it earlier. You've done a lot of training in Ethiopia in recent years. That's been kind of a base camp for you before a lot of your last major marathons, including the Olympic trials, but will you try and return there? Is it just too difficult with everything going on with the pandemic? I'd love to learn a little well, bit more know, about uh, that. To be honest, like I would love to, I would love to go back to Ethiopia, but only the only the reason we're not going to go back to Ethiopia this year is this is kind of like the raining season for them. So it's kind of hard mm -hmm. to train. It's just like you know, just like, and only the reason I go to Ethiopia during the winter because it's kind of hard to train in flag stuff because a lot of snow so cold you know just you can't get like good runs all the time so and and ethiopia now is the rainy season especially like uh june may you like a uh, may up to june july is kind of like when they have a lot of rain on so it's hard to run even the satellite where we train there's a this place in saluted they're called the satellite it's like about five mile loop is on is on a grass there's no way you can run because it would be full of water so it's kind of hard to train in Ethiopia. So I won't be going back to Ethiopia. I will be in Flagstaff leading.
leading to the Olympics. How long have you been going to Ethiopia to train, or when did you start going to Ethiopia to train for some of your marathons? Uh, I started maybe 2016. And why Ethiopia? I just, you know, to be honest, I, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, before, like, you know me, like I've been running for over 20 years. I always train alone, you know, just most of the time I just run with, you know, just people who came to Flagstaff. I run with every group who were here. Uh, I ran with Bernard a long time ago. Just, you know, and Bernard was kind of like, and I've been in Flagstaff so much. So, and my friend Mo started a group, like a Mudana team. And he asked mm-hmm. me if I want to be a part of it. Actually, it was our idea. So he asked me if I want to be a part of it. And, you know, it's not the official team, but it's official for us. And a group, like a five or six guys. And, and, and you know, just, and I say, you know, he invited me a lot before that, like 2000, he invited 2015, but I didn't, I decided to go 2016 because I was just, I just needed change. I just needed something different and, and Ethiopia. And I never been to Ethiopia in a, in a long time. So actually I never been to Ethiopia since I left like uh, Somalia. I never been back to Africa. So, and I say, wow, this is a great opportunity. And just, you will see how things work. And I went there and just had a great time training there. It was fun. And I just, since then I just, decided to go back at least once uh, once a year for five, six weeks at a time. What makes Ethiopia such a special place to train? Uh, what ma- For me, for me, what makes a special place to train is, first and foremost, there would be no distraction. It's a small town, uh, like a 40-minute outside of Addis Ababa. It's a 9,000 above sea level, which is like a, you cannot find it like, the town that sits 9,000 and everything that you don't even have to climb the mountains, just like walking around, you walk around 9,000, you sleep in 9,000. Yeah, you there, you live there. So, which is the benefit, the track you do the work at the 9,000, everything like, and you get all the benefit, just you, you get fit just walking around the town. So that's what makes so special. And the food is natural, just like a, you like, the life is cheap. You just, you know, you go there for two, three months. It won't cost you that much. You know, just everything is simple, simple life. And you will see people like all the great Ethiopian people who, they usually don't live there. The funniest thing is we, the people who live there, like just like me, Mo, Bashir, Abdi, some of the, some of the guys, but the most big uh, Ethiopian athletes don't live there. And the, and the people in Saluta, when they see Mo Farha walking around, they know him, who he is, and what he accomplished. So it's just, it's just funny. They ask him, well, why are you staying here? How come you don't stay Sheraton? And he say, yeah, I just like the simple life. And they're always surprised seeing him drinking coffee on the streets, you know. And that's like what makes so special that place just for us. It's become like a second home. We love training there, and it's a great community. You described some of it just now, but what are the biggest differences between just the culture in Ethiopia around running versus when you're training here in the United States, even in Flagstaff where you've spent a lot of time and there is a very vibrant community. Um, the culture is uh, totally two different, you know, at, at the end of the Flagstaff these days is getting, it's getting, uh, it's getting pretty big. It's a big running community. I've been to Flagstaff like uh, since uh, early 2000. I remember used to be only maybe one or two runners used to come here and train. But now you see the groups who are coming here, like New Balance group, you have the Under Armour group, you have a Hoka group, you have so many groups. And the, and the people don't associate with each other here, just like you just like, you know, everybody does their own thing, every little groups. But the culture in Ethiopia is, especially like, the, where we go in Saluta, you wake up in the morning, you 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 get to see like everybody who is who in the running world. Like you see people who are like you know running to you just see like some two or four, two or three guy. Huh? Oh, that guy. We just got back from Germany, run two o two. Oh, that lady. She just ran like thirty minute thinking, and they just it's normal people. It's just like a nothing special, and no one bothers them. You know, just like. You see Pekela running by himself with his big old jacket just on this. 
everybody knows when Bikan is running there because the way he runs is strong, just like a bouncy, you know, it's just like the culture, running culture, those people are like basically like NBA players there. So all the kids will come watch them, you know, just like they will be sitting there, just like, it's just fun. And even, even though for me, just like, I never thought like people would know who I am. First couple, first couple of times they didn't know who I was, but like, since I started having little success, you know, finishing world major, you know, they would see me on TV. They would be cheering for me. Oh, there's Abdi, he trains in Saluta, you know, just even though I've been there for like maybe five or six weeks, it's just little thing. Little thing like that. The culture, running culture is big. People would pay money to watch a mar- world major marathon. You see, like, someone will have TV or put outside and they would charge the kids, like, you know, just some money and they'll just watch it. Who's directing your training now? Are you self-coached? I mean, you mentioned how you'll jump in with Mo's group when you're in Ethiopia. You'll train with different people in Flagstaff. I mean, you've obviously been doing this for a long time. But how are you thinking about your training, and who, if anyone, is helping you out with it? Uh, you know, I'm, uh, to be honest, like you know, my tra- like running is just I've been doing this for over twenty years, so I kind of know basically what works for me, what doesn't work, you know. And and, and just at the end of the, and training with Mo and their group, it's also great, you know, like a coach, Mo's coach, and you know, Paul Radcliffe, husband Gary Love, has been, you know, has been guiding me, just you know, like like you know, just. You know, he gave me advice what to do, you know, just get ready for a marathon, what kind of workout, you know, works. And also, I still have my University of Arizona coach, Dave Murray, who is retired like in 2002. And I still talk to him, you know, just at the end of the day, just like for me, at this point, you know, just like I just need an idea and the people to bounce with it. You know, just I talk to Gary, I talk to Coach Murray, so and I know what works, you know, just... And and, and and Gary's been a big part of my success the past few races. You know, I just saw my coach Dave Murray, so I can just um I'm not self coach but I know what works for me and just and and running you just need a guardian, someone who's there for you, just hold you accountable. What works for you? Me. Tempo long runs. All day. All day. Has that always been the case for you? Oh yeah, I've always been a good hill runner. So, and I'm glad people, I'm glad they found that in Atlanta. So I'm, I, I didn't want to know how how good I was in hills until Atlanta. So now they can, now they can have all the all the secret because I don't think there will be another course. Well, you, I mean, anyone who's been observing the sport for long enough, I think should know that you're a good hill runner. I mean, you were what five time. U.S. cross-country champion or made yeah. five world teams. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you've run really well at New York City, which is not a flat course. You've run well at Boston, which is not a flat course. I mean, I looked at Atlanta and I was like, this is a great equalizer course for someone like Abdi who, you know, because you're up there in age, maybe you can't turn it over as fast as you could yeah. 15, 20 years ago, but you've got the strength to sustain for the entire distance. As you're true, Mario. That's, that's definitely... The answer, you know, just on other people, if they did some research for me, they, they would have found out I was second in Atlanta how many times. When when there was only not American, it was international runners too. I've run like mm-hmm. low 28s in Atlanta Beach Street course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, just I have done well on those hill courses, even like just in New York City half marathon when it used to be Central Park, the hills. I've run well there, I've run 60. What is it about the hilly courses that you like? I just love hills. I just love running hills. It's just like for me, it's just like if someone asks me, which one do you rather run, a downhill or uphill? I'd rather say uphill every day. Which is interesting because you're a pretty tall guy and typically like taller folks don't fare very well in in uphill races. What do you think it is about your personality or your physiology or some combination of those two things that allows you to be such a strong hill runner? Yeah, you know, like a, what makes me strong, a strong hill runner is like my strides. My, a lot of people don't know my strides get shorter when I'm running up hills and they just get quicker instead of like over striding like I told people do. 
And then the downhill, I'm a hill striker, so I just, I hold myself back. And it just balances itself out. Exactly. As you've gotten older, I mean, how has your training evolved, if at all? I mean, you just mentioned a little while ago how, I mean, even approaching your mid-40s, like you're still training as hard or harder than you did when when you were younger, putting in big mileage weeks. I mean, we hear as folks get into their master's years, maybe they start dialing back the volume a little bit or they adjust the speed work to account for their age. Have you done anything like that as you've gotten older and you just have so many, like literally thousands of miles, like hundreds of thousands of miles on your body? No, actually I haven't done it. Maybe my mileage went up like as I got older, to be honest, my speed, my speed is not there. That's obvious. My, I'm not. I'm not able to do the speed work that I used to do. You know, when I was running the 10k half marathon, even my early marathon days. But but my long runs are longer now. I never used to do like a 20 plus miles long run. For me, 15 miles, 16 miles used to be enough. But now I go 20 plus miles a week. You know, every weekend and and intensity of long runs. That's the secret my success because uh, for me I run in altitude like I'm not just we just run pretty fast I'm not going to say like maybe I will let the people know when I'm done running so how <laughs> <laughs> we run pretty fast you know just for me my, when I come to a marathon most of the time it's much easier than it's just a, it's, it's the fun part of it when you get to the race you said how the tempo runs and the long runs are, are what work for you. We know those are keys to success in the marathon. Are you doing less like interval work and track work than you were when you were younger and focusing on, say, the 10K? And, and if so, do you think doing less of that has just helped preserve your body a little bit more because the intensity is relatively lower? Oh, man. I, you know, to be honest, that's a good question. Just I don't do as much speed workout or track workout I, as I used to do like a five, six, seven years ago, you know, I do less. I probably go like maybe once a, once a week if it's, if I'm even like, you know, if I'm doing a track workout maybe once a week and most of the time we're on the grass, we, we do a lot of like a, you know, long repeats, like a five, six minute, things like that. And, and that's our speed workout, to be honest. And we try to do, we try to hold that like a little bit below marathon pace just if if if, if i'm in utopia for me i do like 9000 we do like a 445 to 440 for the 6 10 minute like you know the the far leg and the far leg usually starts from 10 minutes to go to like a, you know 10 8 go to 6 4 2 and then you do like three sets of that and on intensity usually is high and the volume's high to three sets of that's almost an hour. So which is over 11 miles. Are you doing most of your running, even your harder workouts on softer surfaces? Yeah. How important has that been for your longevity? That's been very, very, very important to be honest. It's not, it's not the easiest. It's not the easiest. And and sometimes you, it won't show the clock, but it will show in your body because like a lot of people usually do, they do things on, let's say pavement. Mm-hmm. They do a lot of a lot of intervals, like a far leg on pavement, and that's will show you the speed that you're hitting the right time and everything. But there's a consequence too. You can get injury, you just can, you might get beat up. For us, we try to do most of the long intervals on dirt road or on the grass. And then maybe if we, if you go to a track, usually it's not that it's not that much actually for for the marathon group for the marathoners. When they do in track, it's totally different. But marathon group usually is just a breakdown, like a like a two k, then a mile, twelve hundred, eight hundred. That would be usually like a two sets of just to turn the legs off. That's it. I want to pivot here and really dig into why I reached out to you to do this interview and have this conversation. Cause I noticed that you're releasing a book and it's called Abdi's world, the black cactus on life running yeah. 
and fun. And as someone who is a little bit younger than you, but has followed the entirety of your career, I've got to hang out with you on occasion. I was like, that's a book I want to read. <laughs> like, I, whatever Avdi's got to say, he has been in this game for a long time. I think he's one of the most interesting and exciting people in the sport. I don't care what it's about, but I want to read it. So first question is, when did the idea to write a book come to you? Um, and was it your idea or did someone plant it with you? Uh, you know, to be honest, it was my idea. It just like, uh, it was my idea. I didn't want to, I did want to write a book, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not a writer. So I got a ghost, I got a, you know, uh, Milas, he's a, he's a, he's a local guy. He had a publishing company, Solis Publishing out of like a day wrote Joe Vion's book. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would just, I, I was doing like, a, I was doing something for Coach Vion's book and he just asked, we were just talking and he said, he said, well, and, and I, and I just told him, I said, you know what? I'd like to write a book one day. After maybe I, and, he, and he just, his eyes just lit up and he said, man, you should write a book. You have a great story, you know, just great story to tell. And we talked a few times and just, you know, like knowing me, I just, I said, okay. And then just, I never follow up. I just, <laughs> you know, just, I said, okay. And he follow up a couple of times and then we meet up just, and, you know, and then just end up one day we met out of the park, we were doing the first interview. And it's just going to be a fun book, you know, it's, just all, it's all about running, about me, how I, you know, a lot of people just, they know me as Opti, you know, just been here since, <laughs> been running since 2000, ever since 1996, that's when I started running. So, you know, it's, it's going to be, it just like, it's just going to, the book is going to be about me, coming to U.S., how I end up coming to U.S., you know, just how I start running, you know, just like what motivates me, you know, just my training camp in Ethiopia, just uh, training in Flagstaff, you know, being trained with Ryan Shea, just, just a lot of fun stuff. It's just, it's a lot of uh, motivational, you know, just like, and, you know, it's, and I also have all my part of injury, you know, just there's so many times that I have been injured and people always, I remember 2012, I remember I, I got a like a you know I got a like a Nike reduction letter night before my race. They say, oh, we're gonna reduce you fifty percent or like the, I don't know what it was, but I say, you know what, I'm just I'm gonna run the race. And I say, why don't you hold this race? And I say, what? And I told them, I say, you know, you can hold the letter. I say, I'm gonna make the team. If I make the team, you're gonna give me a full pay. And if I don't make it, I don't want it. And that was just the conversation that I had with the Nike rep. And just and I said, okay. And I made the team and he came to see and he told me, you have balls. <laughs> uh, just things like that. Yeah. Well, it goes back to the confidence that we talked about earlier in this yeah, conversation. I just believed in myself. I just, at the end of the day, if you don't believe in yourself, no one else will believe you. So, right. When did these conversations with Miles start about the book? Uh, they started, I think, what I call last May. Okay. So not that long ago. Not, not that long ago. Yep, definitely, yeah. And what was the process like of sitting down with him to do these interviews for the book that he's helping you write as you're telling these stories and recounting memories? Like as you're, as you're telling him this stuff, and some of these things I, I presume sharing for the first time publicly like what was that like for you like was it a cathartic process did it bring up some good memories bad memories like did it force you to be a bit more introspective i'd love to just dig into that a little bit with you yeah you know uh, definitely it was it, it was like it had everything to be honest it had everything you know just at the end of the day and to be honest i wish i could share everything with the audience because you just that's what that's that's when that's when the fun comes in. You just have to read the book, but it it also been a it was a emotional. It was mm -hmm. not the easiest book. It was not the easiest book to write because at the end of the day, like you know, people know me as Adi, you know, the distance runner, you know, the funny guy, just you know, outgoing, and that's all good thing. But they don't know the reason I came to US. How how do I end up here? It was my choice. You know, they struggled that behind the getting here, you know, just at the end of the day. What your parents, your family, what they've been to to get here. And that's the difficult part of the book. 
you know, because that just brings back some memory, you know, just because of the civil war in Somalia, you know, and I also like, it's not like I one day woke up and say, hey, I'm going to go to America. You know, it wasn't that easy. It was just one day you woke up and you don't know what the future holds for you. Just like you don't know what you, where you're going to get your next meal, what happened, you know, because it's a civil war. At the end of the day, I'm thankful for everything that I've been through and it made me the person who I am today. But it wasn't the easiest though. How old were you when you came to the U.S.? Uh, I was seven years old. What are your earliest memories of that time in your life? Do you remember much about your first seven years in Somalia or did those first memories really start to take place once you got here? No, I do remember the first seven years of my life. You know, it was great to be honest. Like, it's a, you just at the end of, I have everything that I wanted in life. You know, just my dad had a great job. We just, we were well off. We were like, we're not, we are both middle class, to be honest. We were not even like, we were like well off family, you know, my, just my dad was well educated, man, had a great job. Just, you know, we live in a nice neighborhood. And I used to play soccer with my friends in the front of the house. You know, just everything was great. And when, uh, and everything was taken away from you that one day later. Just you have one day that, and the next day you're on the streets or like fleeing from a war. And without giving too much away, because I know it's in the book and people should definitely read your account for themselves, but like, what was that like for you as a, as a seven-year-old to have your entire world flipped upside down, like in an instant and to realize that all of a sudden you're not in a great situation and you and your family need to get out of it? Yeah, it was difficult to be honest. It was difficult. Like, uh, you know, it's just something like uh, whenever I whenever I remember it, just like because I remember like you couldn't even, we have cars, but you couldn't drive because if you drive, people will, you know, will rob you. They will take the car from you. It was just only was a strong survive. I and mean, my dad was not a militia man. It was not a military man. It just, you know, he just have a normal life. If we take the car, just maybe someone will rob us. So the easiest thing was just to walk like a few miles left to another town and we get a you know, just car and just, you know, and we never end up, you know, just to a good place right away. But we have to struggle for a few days here, there, stay with friends, stay with family, because the war was just like in the capital city. But we moved to town to town because like the war was getting closer. So when it gets to one town, we'll move to the other town. And that time we'll just move to the other town until we end up to Kenya. And, you know, and, and it's an interesting story, you know, it just, it is... It is something that will make you appreciate life more. It's just like what you have just at the end of the days. And for me, I'm not complaining. I'm not the person who complains and say, hey, I've been through this, this. It's just that's just my story. Just and I'm and I'm and I'm willing to share it. And it just to be honest, I look back, I know it was difficult, it was more, but it made me the person who I am today, to be honest. I I'm, I'm thankful being an American, just like I'm every day, never take anything for granted. Like just, I have no too much not given, but I'm just, yeah, that's, that's just life for me. That's just my life. You see me smiling all the time and happy. I'm just because I know what I've been through and just, I know tomorrow is not guaranteed to be the same, even though we hope that everything will be okay. But you know what? We live our life to the fullest every single day and just, I think that's a, a great message. And I, I do hope a lot of people pick up the book and and read your story and are able to, you know, really understand that for themselves. I'm interested in your earliest memories from arriving here in the United States and completely different world from where you came from in Somalia. What were your initial impressions when you arrived in Arizona, which is where your family went. And I mean, where you've more or less been your, your entire oh, life since yeah. then. Yeah. You know, it was great to be honest. Like I remember the first, we flew out of Mombasa, Mombasa, Kenya to Dublin, Ireland. And even sometimes when I go to, when I go to Ethiopia, 
my way back home, I usually stop by the Dublin just to get fuel for the airplane to get fuel to make it to the States because they, you know, like the wind direction. So they have the mm-hmm. fuel. So whenever I stop by there, it brings back memory when I was going, my first time going to the States where we stopped by was in Dublin, Ireland to fuel our way to New York. And yeah, first we flew from Mombasa, Kenya to Dublin fuel and then we made to New York. Some of the, some of the people who were with us, the refugee people, they, they were going, I think they end up going to Minnesota, which a lot of the community choose to go to Minnesota, but we end up mm-hmm. choose to go out. So they get out of the plane, they take another flight to Minnesota. So for us, we took a plane to Arizona. I remember coming back, landing at night, almost like a nine or 9 p.m., I think. We landed in Tucson and it was dark. <laughs> it was light. And I said, are we back in Mombasa? Because we flew from New York to Tucson, the lights are different. So I said, are we back to Mombasa? I just asked me, no, we're in Tucson. So, you know, just waking up in the morning, going to the my first grocery, just buying all the candy and something that you usually don't in Africa, like uh, in Somalia or, you know, in Kenya, while, I was, while I was in Kenya, you know, just getting a little candy was a treat. But just going to the store, to the grocery, seeing all the candy everywhere and then just getting whatever that you want to get it and drinking just like, you know, for like, especially for us being in the refugee camp for the past few years and coming and going to the grocery, buying the whole chicken, just, it just was, it was life changing. It was like that. And that was just like, uh, we went from going, we went from the lowest point in life to the highest point within 24 hours. And that is because one day you go to like eating meat once a week to go into the grocery buying the whole chicken by something. I mean, I think in a lot of ways that's the American dream. Yeah. Um, like that really is a dream. I mean, I, yeah. I can imagine you as a young kid looking at all of this candy on the shelves in the store, you know, being able to have chicken every night. Yeah. If you want it, you're like, this yeah. is a dream. Like this, Ex- this exactly before, yeah. yeah, this before for us was like a, a real you know, this was a treat. This was like a, a luxury. Now we can have this every day. Yeah. You know, if we want, it's just a, it's just a completely, a completely different world, really. Different, yeah. And and that's you know, and that's why I just want. That's why I look at the life the way I look at it because I know. Because I have the experience, you know. Just that's the one thing, and I enjoy running. I just like I love, just basically I love what I do. Basically, I just like, I never trying to push my idea to people or just like. A, say something just because and I treat the people the way I treat I just I'm always smiling to everybody not fake nothing just like you know what if someone says something about me you know what it is what it is I just keep it to myself knowing what I know about your story hearing you talk a little bit about it here it reminds me a lot of one of your Olympic teammates and former training partners, Meb Kofleski, whose family came here to the U.S. from Eritrea. A lot of parallels between yeah. Oh, yeah. your story. Different paths, but but very much um, the same the same origin story, escaping a war-torn country in, in search of a better opportunity. I'm interested, have the two of you ever talked about your respective experiences coming to the United States from Africa? What, to, to be honest, yeah, me and Meb, we have a many conversations, um, and I'm very close to Meb. Actually, a lot of people don't know that, but me and Meb, we've been roommates, like every Olympic that we made it together, we'll always hang out, just like a share room, and we always talk about how grateful we are to be in this country, and just on the thing that provided for us. I just, I'm not vocal about it, you know, Meb's kind of more outgoing than me, but, and me, we have like a, you know, closed door conversations, sometimes we are thankful what we have. And, and at the end of the day, a lot of people know Meb and, you know, he talks a lot about his family and that's genuine. That's how he feels. And it's not like, he's not trying to do anything, but he just wanted, he, he wanted him to share his experience with his life. And, and that's some conversation that we have with Dagdor and just something we enjoyed, what we have and nothing comes easy. And, you know, just we always tell each other, say, we're going to work as hard as we can. And we're trying to get 
and we try to get our body whatever we can you know just this is an opportunity for us to share our our idea our vision and that's it is and also for me I feel like you know this is just opened so many doors for me just me being Olympian at, at the best I have a lot of other plans just I want to do something back to my country my community not only in Somalia but also in Tucson because they give me they accepted me as a community I'm, I'm their son so I want to give it back and also like in the future I'm going to launch my hopefully my foundation right to have hope foundation it's not a obvious foundation or it's just like a genetic right to have hope everybody have the right you know it just doesn't matter what you come from your background where you came from what you have everybody have the right you know just that's it tell me a little bit more about your plans for the foundation it sounds like it's in its very early stages at this yeah. point obviously you're focused right now your short-term focus right now is just getting yourself ready for the olympic games but is this going to be your big like post-olympic project is to get this foundation off the ground yep that's one of my big projects after the olympics hopefully during like next four years after the olympics maybe even be training for the 2024 trials i'm not saying i'm gonna make but i take one year out of time so i'm not retiring this year or next year so but that's like you know I feel like, you know, I have a lot to offer, you know, just I've been so many places in the world. I have so much connection. I have so many friends. And for just for me to give it back into my community in Tucson, you know, even in, in Arizona, all over the states, you know, just mm-hmm. right to have, right have Hope Foundation, you know, just right, just like, it's not any specific for any group. It's just right. It's for all human, for everybody. I mean, North America is a right up for each just. Because everybody, like some kid in Brazil, hey, if he has a dream and he doesn't have the he doesn't have the funding to do it, but he has the right to have a hope, you know, he has the right to dream. So hopefully, we can provide the funding and the thing that he needs, you know, just and and also like I wish I could do for everybody that come because, but we have to select, you know, just. Just build the foundation for the world, you know. Just can't be a politician, can't be a doctor, can't be a student, you know. Can't be a, an athlete. It doesn't have to be a, only a runner. Why does now feel like the right time to give back in all of these different ways? Because I feel like right because now I have more time to do the thing that I want to do. Because I, at the end of the day, I'm I'm not a person who does thing a halfway. Uh, I want to like I want to commit to it 100%, and, and I'm willing to do that like the next few years. Before that, I have the running and I have other things going on. Just you know, training itself takes a long time, so don't want to do like a halfway. How much? I mean, you said you've said many a time during this conversation. You just take things one year at a time as it relates to your running career. But like, if if you had to look far ahead like how much longer do you think you can continue to compete at a high level or will you just keep going until you can't keep compete at a high level anymore and then just say yep time to hang it up to be honest like i don't know that's a good question i've been and i've been asked that question before i've been asked for 2016 i've been asked for 2012 after the olympics and you know just i could have said that oh, okay i could have put a limit and myself, I say, okay, I'm gonna done like you know, 2015. I would have done 2017. If I would have said those questions, I wouldn't be here today, sitting here and talking to you, you know. And I know that. And this is not like I'm not, I'm, I'm gonna do until I cannot do it anymore. It just I know the time is gonna come, and I know there will be a day I say, okay, I have accomplished everything, even though I did accomplish my goals. There's a day that I say, okay. I have done everything that I could do. But now, I don't want to put that thing in my head because I have a big job ahead of me in the next few months. So just, uh, Matt, you, you asked me that question after the Olympics, it might be a different answer. <laughs> you are known as someone who likes to have fun. I mean, you've never struck me as like the stereotypical running geek, though I was surprised to hear you say earlier how you do read the message boards and you are interested in what people are saying to you leading up to a key race. But I'm curious, like, what role does running 
play in your life outside of it just being your job? Does it give you benefits beyond being just how you make your living? Uh, at lifestyle, you know, I love running because running is something that everyone can do. Just, you know, just I mean, a lot of people do it. I have a lot of friends who are like baseball players, basketball players, but they still do run, you know, just like a, and I think, and I love running and I enjoy running. And most of the, like, a, most of my long run is my, something that I look forward to the weekend, to be honest, when I'm in good shape. So just uh, people out there. So I don't want people to get the wrong impression. Say, oh, I love the long run. I can't believe you look forward. All I look forward to when I'm in good shape. When I'm in good shape, the best thing that I do is my Sundays. Sunday long run is the best one because I can go as fast as I want to go. I can go any road that I want to go, climb any hill that I want to climb, just for two hours to myself. It's just like it's peaceful. You can solve all your problems. You can meditate, whatever you want to do. And that's what I get out of running. Do you think you'll always be a runner, even when it's not your profession anymore? Oh, definitely. 100%. 100. Um, one thing I'm afraid of like uh, in life is me getting big belly. Talk, talk to me a little bit more about that. Why, why are you so afraid of getting a big belly? I don't know. It's just like in all my life I've known like me being the fit guy, the skinny guy. I don't know. I just remember uh, for me growing up, I remember going to high school. I used uh, I was afraid of wearing shorts. I never wear shorts because I told people would make fun of me, my skinny legs. But now I wear, I probably wear shorts, and I'm, I'm just definitely proud, like who I became. It's just, and that just become with age, you know. To be honest, so, and for me, getting big bill is not something that I'm interesting. Even when I'm done running, <laughs> I will run that through through my dead man, just instead of getting a belly. You mentioned how when you were a kid, I mean, you wouldn't wear shorts because you were embarrassed about your skinny legs. When did you finally start to feel comfortable in your own body? Uh, no, just after college, I think. Just after college. after the, I think after 2000 Olympics. That late? Yeah. It just, for me, I'm, I'm just not like, to be honest, I don't know, it's just like a, I know my friend just have all these big muscles, you know, big calves. I have the small calves. But what I find out, like, and I never realized I was good at something, even when I was in college. I knew I was good. I was good at running, but I just never know how good I was. When did you first start to discover your talent for running? My talent was the first day I started running. Uh... Like, a, I think it was 1995 at the Pima Community College. I just, just uh, first day I ran, I came in second to five mile run with a pair of boots and jeans. And that's when I found out, uh, I didn't find out, but that's when the coach told me I have a talent. He just, you know, hey, why don't you join the team? And that was the beginning of my running career. Do you remember what you ran for that five mile run in boots and jeans? I don't. I, I don't remember the time, to be honest. I wish I did, though. Do you remember how you felt? I felt okay. I was keeping up with the guy. One of the one of my good friends is a John Lanza. Still living in Tucson, one of my neighbors. But he kicked so hard that last 400 meters. I couldn't keep up with him. Do you remember how you felt afterward? Was it a sense of accomplishment? I mean, you're in boots and jeans, so it, it didn't sound like you were necessarily ready to to run or it was something that you had been building up for or planning to do. But once you finished and you were second and someone told you that you were, you were good at it. I, I, I love, I'd love to just try and get into your headspace at the time and understand how you were feeling about it. Yeah, it was, I remember it was five mile. I remember it was five mile run. That's exactly because I remember I have done that run many times on the first day I did, I just remember, and also, like, when I say boot, they were not actually the normal boot where they have the heel or the leather bottom. They were, I don't, I don't, I don't know if you remember the rock boot, they have the bottom oh, yeah. was cushioning, was cushioned. So that's what I was wearing, just, and they were comfortable to run with it. Just, it's not my choice to run with it now, but, uh, 
But at that time, like, I remember just running, and we weren't running that far, and I just have to keep up with the guy. And I remember the last mile, he was just picking up the pace, and that's when I felt, actually, we were running hard. Other than that, it was just a joke. And, and that's when we dropped everybody, and I get second to him. But it, the feeling was, it's not like something I say, oh, I don't want to do it again. I say, wow, that was easy, you know. And also, I get so excited because the coach told me I was on the team. I can come tomorrow to his office, get the uniform stuff. The excitement was just there. So, couple more questions before we wrap up. You've mentioned Mo Farah a couple times in this conversation. Like you, he is a native of Somalia. He wrote the foreword to your book. You've trained frequently with him in recent years. What's your relationship like to him? But, uh, I don't know, a lot of people, I don't know, a lot, uh, most like my little brother, to be honest. Like, he's like a brother to me, just like, so he's basically my little brother. I have known Mo since 2000, my first international race at the U.S. I know him, and also we're, we're from the same region of the country. We just like, you know, our, our extended family know each other back home. And we're not just, and we've been close friends and just like, to be honest, he's one of the kindest people that I know for me as a friend. Just always like he's a friend that I can call on. Like if, if I need anything, just like uh, someone I say, hey, someone who always will be there for me regardless. All right, last question because I know we need to wrap this one up. And I was going to ask this at the top, but it almost feels more appropriate to put it at the end. But do you remember the first interview that we ever did? I think I, you got me this one. I think it's in my head, you know, just like some, something was in your head. Exactly. I know I did the interview with it, but I don't remember exactly when. All right. I'll refresh your memory a little bit. It was 2006, August, and it was right before the New York City half marathon. I was just getting my feet wet in this running media space. And you were one of the first, I think five pro athletes that I ever had a chance to interview. And I was really excited to talk to you before that race. So before we got on to record this conversation, I was like, let me, let me see if I can find that interview. And I remember it was from mensracing.com, which doesn't exist anymore. It was like a New York Roadrunners site. And I went into the Wayback machine of the internet and I found the interview. I was able to dig it up. I'll send it to you once we... Oh, get off. And it was crazy. it was really cool to kind of go back like 15 years to to 2006. I mean, you were you were in your 20s at the time. Um, oh yeah. I I mean, I was also in I was I was also in my 20s, but a bit younger than you. And I remember like you know talking to you about that specific race, but like kind of where you were in your career at that time. And we were talking about like what post running life held for you and it's kind of crazy to think that we were talking about that and here you are you know 15 years later still at it um but one of the things you told me at the time that that jumped out to me and i want to bring it back to you now and i think it's been a theme that's come out in this conversation is you you told me i just want to run fast and be happy when i asked you about your future goals in the sport and from the outside looking in, I mean, it seems like you've done a great job of that. I mean, everything else aside, the Olympic teams that you've made, national titles, all of it, I mean, you continue to run fast and you're still one of the happiest guys that I know. Well, and thank you, Mario, man. That's great. My, my question for you to follow up on that is how? I just enjoy what I do, man. I look I'm, a lot of people be honest like and at the end of the day I don't let anything that I cannot control myself affect me as a person or my running or my love of running you know what and Mario you know the sports it's it's a sports that is like a, a lot of people they see us running fast but they don't know what goes behind doors like when it comes to sponsorship deals when it comes to shoe deals when it comes to like everything like I have my 
I have my part of struggle with when it comes to shoe company. But you know what? At the end of the day, if I put my if I put my career on the hand of someone else, like a, I would say, like a shoe company, just tell you what to do. Like they say, oh, we're gonna catch you this, do that, do that. They can ruin your career. And that happened to a lot of athletes that I know personally, who are like who are extremely, extremely, extremely talented. But going through difficult times, just a small window of their career. And uh, when they lose that little contract they're getting from someone else, that's like, that's the end of their career. But for me, I'm, that's one of my strengths I look at it because, I, because I've been fighting with shoe company a lot, man, just about. But I just let them know to control my career. I just I say, you know what, do whatever you want to do. Who, I am like I'm Abdi and this is what I do. You know what? You can do whatever you want to do. But you know what? You're gonna see me in the podium doing well. And that's all but you don't control my career. You don't control what I do. And at the end of the day, it's not a perfect world, but you can make it perfect yourself. Control what you can control. I think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. Abdi, I've really enjoyed the last hour and I thank you for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Well, thank you, Mario. Thanks for having me and thanks for reminding me the interview that we have a 2005 and we still are here doing it, man. Hopefully I'm looking for another 15 years. We'll be 60 years old by that time. So, All right. I'm going to hold you to it. Let's do it. I mean, that's going to that's gonna force me to keep my hand on the stove for another 15 years and do what I do. And I think it'd be amazing in what, 20... 36 yeah. to to sit back down as Abdi's making his I mean I guess at that point it'd be what your eighth or ninth <laughs> uh, I want to be the I want to be the first interview uh, that you give yeah thank you Mario All right. Thank you so much for listening in to the morning shakeout podcast a big thank you to Boa for sponsoring this episode of the show BOA wants you to get dialed in, locked in, and connected to the trail in the new BOA-powered La Sportiva Cyclone. Available in men's and women's sizes, every aspect of the shoe is engineered to deliver revolutionary fit and performance on the trail. And it was designed and tested in BOA's state-of-the-art performance fit lab to improve running efficiency and reduce landing impact. BOA is exclusively offering four Morning Shakeout listeners the opportunity to win a free pair of the Cyclone, and you can enter at boafit.com slash Mario. That's B-O-A-F-I-T dot com slash Mario. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM Shakeout social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you will love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, five, 10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>